My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the recent escalation between Hamas and Israel through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder, on this uh, Sunday morning. Um, why are we speaking about the events from yesterday? Why are we speaking about the events from Saturday? Hi, Dario. Well, yesterday, a number of things happened in the world, including a horrendous earthquake in Afghanistan with over 2,000 people, as far as we know now, dying, and subsequent human hardship. But of course, all of the news has been obsessively uh, reporting on the situation between Israel and Hamas or the attack on Israel by Hamas and other groups and the actual facts that we completely ignore um, a natural disaster such as Afghanistan in news reporting but also when it comes to just your general talking in the street and all that and we are so busy um, and so emotionally invested in the events of Israel, uh, in Israel is something to analyze, is something relevant for us to understand, because that tells us a lot about the state of the global mind at the moment. And what are the facts? On the 7th of October 2023, Palestinian militant groups, mainly Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, with other groups such as the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, launched a major attack on Israel from the Gaza Strip with a rocket barrage and vehicle transported uh, attacks across the border on Israeli communities and forces, causing, as of today, Sunday the 8th of October at 10.30, 300 deaths and 2,000 injured on the Israeli side, um, and 400 deaths and 2,000 injured on the Palestinian side after Israeli retaliations. For this episode, it's very important for us that obviously this is a very contentious topic. It's very contemporary. It happened just yesterday. There's a lot of feelings involved and this is, I think, a very emotional topic uh, for all sides. So for us, as always with any topic, it's always important to stress that we are we're obviously devastated with the humanitarian suffering on all sides, right? It doesn't matter whether you're an Israeli or whether you're Palestinian or whether you're an Afghani uh, person. Yesterday was a terrible day for most of them, uh, most likely. And uh, so here we obviously, um, you know, um, you know, our feelings go out uh, to all of them. Yes, and there are days that not much seems to be happening in the world, no disaster strikes. And then, then there are all sudden days that everything seems to come together at the same time. And yeah, Saturday the 7th of October was a dark day in that sense. It is also natural in many ways that something like an earthquake gets a little bit overshadowed by human conflict, by violence between human groups, right? There is a dramatic element to that that we don't necessarily associate with natural disasters because natural disasters are more seen as an act of God, if you like, something that is outside of our control. Whereas, of course, when humans shoot at each other, when there is murder and violence, then that comes 
cl closer to our emotional state of being because we have a certain responsibility towards those events. So the fact that we are focusing on Israel at a global level, that's, that news reporting is all focused on Israel and Hamas, is not in itself surprising, but it is important to understand that this has more to do with our emotional state of mind and less to do with actually a utilitarian evaluation of suffering because in Afghanistan right now, it's also a very, very dark day. What is the bubble? Um, let's begin the bubble conversation with something that we haven't done in, in quite some time. Um, and this is talking about our own biases. So in the first few episodes, we did this at the beginning of every episode, uh, talking about, okay, what's our own bias with regards to this topic? And at some point we stopped doing this because it was taking up a lot of time and we wanted to focus more on the analysis. And by now, I believe that the listeners know us rather well. Um, however, for this topic in particular, it's very important to me personally uh, to, to quickly state this at the beginning that I am a little bit biased here in this regard um, that and that is simply connected to German history right I mean, so the listeners know I'm German by nationality I grew up in this country I went to school here and I've very much I'm very much a part you know of this of this remembrance culture and for me uh, this is something I, th I said in the in the talk uh, preparing uh, this episode that for me seeing an Israeli or a Jewish person running away from someone with a gun evokes different feelings than, let's say, a Palestinian person running away from a soldier with a gun, simply because the Palestinian or anyone else, for that for that matter, running away from, from someone with a gun uh, hits me as a human, right? It makes me feel terrible as a human. But if I see someone of uh, someone Jewish or someone Israeli running away uh, from someone with a gun, it, it hits deep with regards to the German identity and the German culture, simply because based on our history. Um, so I, it was really just important for me to kind of state this at the beginning uh, that you know I, I do have a bit of a of a bias here um, that's that's due to my country's history and culture. It the the trick there is to recognize it right exactly as you just did rather than try to eliminate it. Uh, we are non-rational creatures, human beings, and we have all kinds of emotional sort of side effects from history, from um, culture, from our uh, environment and i would argue that for most people in europe so i'm dutch but i would also probably have a little bit of a bias in that sense uh, the dutch have never taken sufficient responsibility for what happened in the second world war we just acted as if we were conquered by the germans and that was it but of course the netherlands was part of a very anti-semitic culture, very anti-Semitic history, and um, the Dutch government was very happily cooperating with uh, Germany during uh, the 1940s under occupation. And so it probably is a good thing for most Europeans, Western Europeans, and certainly for Dutch people as well, to have that extra layer of emotional attachment to Jewish people being persecuted or Jewish people being hurt, right? And it is it is it is part of our history it's part of our culture and that extra bit of awareness is nothing crazy there's nothing there's nothing in itself problematic about that that doesn't mean that in the analysis we should value a jewish life over a non-jewish life yeah and uh, so what we just discussed the spice you also saw in the uh, in the western reaction uh, to yes to yesterday's events, especially within the governments, right? I mean, immediately it's a non-brainer for all governments 
uh, to publish a statement for all heads of states, for all heads of governments uh, to, to condone the violence. Um, uh, but you could also see it on the Twitter accounts of anyone who believes of them to be important, so of any politician, of any media personality, anywhere in the West. Everyone took to Twitter. I refuse to call it X. Everyone took to Twitter um, and uh, and basically uh, shared their thoughts on this. So there was definitely like if you looked at uh, again if you looked at the, the Twitter uh, trends yesterday, it was crazy how much traffic was generated on this topic because this topic makes feel makes everyone feel something or at least I would say the majority, um, the, the majority of the world. And here you could see already a bit of the Western bubble, right? We have a the West has a preference for Israel over. Uh, I would say the Palestinian Palestinian cause. If you talk about the the overall West, yes, and this this is partially because of the emotional baggage from the past. It's also partially because of strategic reasons. But there's no doubt, and this is not just visible this weekend, but this has been visible over decades, um, almost you know, over half of a century, certainly by now, um, that we in Western media value uh, in our reporting at least in the emphasis we put we value a jewish life a israeli life over the life of a palestinian and when an israeli settler gets killed that gets way more attention than if a palestinian gets killed Um, that's just the the way it is in the west Uh, unfortunately many people are not necessarily aware of that bias and as a result when something like yesterday happens all of a sudden, all our emotional um, buttons gets pushed. And we uh, we have a huge reaction towards that, which is something that doesn't necessarily happen towards Palestinians. Very much indeed. Um, then there was... So, so there's the Western reaction, right? the Western government reaction, but then there's also the Western media reaction. Um, and avid listeners of the podcast know this is my favorite part uh, when I get to when I get to criticize the media for how they report on certain topics. Um, and yesterday is no different, right? Because every newspaper, no matter how small and unimportant, needs to have a live ticker on the events that are happening. We can't just say, here, there's a link to, I don't know, uh, Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, New York Times, Washington Post. Pick whichever one you like. Um, but we don't need to put a journalist who doesn't have a lot of international relations training on the internet now basically copying updates from all the other news sources, right? However, because you have this, this is how it leads to um, a lot of mistakes, I would say, in reporting, because they don't have that training. There's always this conflation of Palestinians and Hamas, right? There's the... I, I've, I've multiple times yesterday, I read, oh, Palestine attacking Israel. And I, wait, wait a second, one second. There's, there's a huge difference between Palestine, first of all. What is Palestine? Is that a state? Is that a government? Is that a nation? Are you talking about the Palestinian Authority? Or are you talking about Hamas? Right? That, that was already the first few problems. And this conflation is not only happening in the media, but also in general in conversations. And, of course, that's a conversation, that, or that's, that's a part of a conversation that is very much encouraged by, for example... Um, currently the Israeli government, right? This this idea that those two are the same. But here's the, here's the thing. Uh, the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis, which certainly could have been, maybe in a slightly simplified version, could have been posited 
in the 1950s, in the 1960s, a conflict between two groups of people, both vying for the same kind of territory, trying to, trying to find a balance in terms of, okay, where does your state begin and where does mine end, those kinds of things. That conflict finished decades ago. That conflict is no longer there. There is no longer a conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians because Israel has essentially won that conflict. That there is no longer a viable Palestinian state. There is no longer any existential threat in terms of territory, in terms of the existence of the state for Israel. Israel is secure in its Westphalian sovereignty. Doesn't mean that every Israeli is secure, as we saw in events last uh, yesterday and, and over, over the past years, but as a state, Israel has won this conflict. So now what you see is it's a conflict between the Israeli state and specific groups, some of which are incredibly radical and one of which is Hamas. And so to now argue that this is a fight between Israel and Palestine rather than a fight between Israel and Hamas is not just incorrect, but it's also incredibly damaging because it means that the reaction our reaction, but especially the Israelis government, Israelis government's reaction to these events is going to be erroneous, is going to uh, spread the violence beyond where it should spread. Speaking about places where the conflict will spread, where it shouldn't spread, um, this was another part of the media reaction, which uh, I done yesterday, I, I had a bit of a crisis over. Um, immediately you had quote-unquote analytical articles, right, predicting that, oh, um, if Hezbollah gets involved, you know, from Lebanon and the Syrian forces, Israel could be at the verge of a multiple fronts war, right, and Israel's real danger here. And, and you know, this is, all again, part of that Western bubble spiel, right, that's also part of the journalistic bubble of, oh, let, let me create some terrible scenarios so people continue reading reading my updates. Because, I mean, Hezbollah's reaction to this was approving, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to say neutral, right, approving, but in, by no means one of let us send rockets over the border as well. And in Syria, the uh, the, the forces uh, d didn't have a reaction like this either, right? This was another one of those typical Western bubble journalist articles who said, you know what, if Hezbollah joins, then Israel is at the verge of collapse and then we need war or whatever. And they were quick to dismiss the few rockets that were sent as a non-centralized decision, right? By just local actors who, who send in some rockets rather than Hezbollah joining in the fight. Now, and this is something that the Western media, but also to a certain extent Israeli media, um, hasn't sufficiently covered over decades now. The idea, essentially, that since 1978, Israel doesn't have to worry about multi-front wars anymore. It had to worry in the past, before 1978. In fact, there were three full-blown wars where Israel essentially was fighting for its existence. Absolutely. But the moment that the Camp David Accords uh, took Egypt out of the equation, because Egypt recognized the right for Israel to exist and signed a peace treaty with Israel, from that moment on, and that is now 45 years ago, and I know that exactly because it was my date, year of birth, um, uh, 45 years ago, uh, since then, Israel has been secure in its territorial identity. And there is no scenario in the world where that 
Westphalian sovereignty is threatened. So when even Netanyahu yesterday says we are at war, what is he actually referring to? Because there is no one invading the territory of Israel. These are, if you like, terrorist groups. These are violent groups who have certain, if you like, anti-Israeli goals, who kill Israeli citizens, who kidnap Israeli citizens, but who do not threaten the sovereignty, the, the, the state of Israel in its very existence. Yeah, exactly. Like, right, this is, and this is that one of those things that gets conflated, right? It's, it, this is, maybe Netanyahu wants you to believe this, but this is not an existential struggle for Israel anymore. It is very much this, right? And I mean, you you, you just called them you just called them a terrorist organization or or, or terrorist tactics. I I, th I I think you said to just just to quote you correctly here, um, right? And this was another one of those terms that got thrown around very easily yesterday, right? And I mean, the listeners already know I'm not a big fan of the word terrorist just because it's being used so inflationary. Here, I think you can say, yes, these are terrorist tactics, but I'm going to bring up the cheesiest quote that I know from international relations. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Absolutely. That's why I, and you, you corrected this yourself, uh, I, I would typically not call an organization a terrorist organization uh, simply because terrorists, uh, terrorism is a tactic. It's not an ideology. It's a way to achieve certain things. Or sometimes achieving certain things is simply achieving violence, murder, right? And and sometimes it actually has political goals. And that's something that we can analyze in this episode as well. And I would like to add a analogy here that maybe will come back later in the episode as well, is the analogy of 9-11, um, where there was a murder of 3,000 civilians, if you like, innocents to, to add drama to that statement, innocent civilians, uh, horrendous murder with, with enormous human suffering as a consequence on the 11th of September 2001. But this was not an existential threat to the United States. Uh, nobody in their right mind thought that this was the start of a war between the United States and, let's say, the Arab world or the Muslim world. They did nothing to do with that. It was a group that used terrorist tactics, Al-Qaeda, that murdered 3,000 people. And the reaction to that was very much in the hands of the White House. The White House, on the one hand, could have reacted in a way like, this is just one group and we're going to get Osama bin Laden and that's that, and we're going to grieve the victims. Or we're going to start a full-blown military action against anyone who is mildly related to any of this. They chose that second scenario. They broadened the war. They broadened the conflict to something that went way beyond the people actually responsible for 9-11. And the result of that was not just tremendous human suffering in the long term, in the case of 9-11, hundreds of thousands of victims as part of the war on terror, but also a weakening of the United States position in the world. And so there, there is an interesting analogy now with Israel, that Israel can say, these were murderers, kidnappers, terrorists, uh, and we're going to catch the people responsible for this. We're going to go after the leadership. We're going to make sure that we get the people who are currently imprisoned in Hamas's hands back to Israel safely and well. And beyond that, we're just going to grieve the victims and we're going to continue. 
Or they can say, we're starting a full-blown war against the Palestinians. We're starting, we're going to fight uh, Hezbollah. We're going to fight at some point Iran because they're related somehow to this. If Israel takes that side, then they commit exactly the same mistake as the United States committed after 9-11. They broaden the conflict. They make it into a wider uh, cycle of violence. And that will not only lead to a tremendous extra human suffering, it will in the long term likely even weaken Israeli security. We will definitely, we will definitely get back to this, especially I believe in the in the what's the future uh, part of this part of this episode. Um, one last part to the specific Western bubble aspect here is um, is is you on Google. Uh, so yesterday uh, you, <laughs> I, I I don't know why, um, but you you Google the Palestinian Authority. And uh, then you sent me a, a, a very angry message, um, not at me, but, but a bit, you know, enraged message of what is the search result? If I Google the Palestinian uh, National Authority, how is it that this comes up? Yes, I just um, for my own credibility, uh, I want to make clear that I didn't Google it to know what it was because I was aware of the Palestinian National Authority, but I wanted to look up some details and I just typed in Google Palestinian Authority because I wanted to get to Wikipedia to look at some details about dates and all that. And before even getting to Wikipedia, the first result, and I assume that this is the same for everyone, I just did it again. If I type Palestinian Authority in Google, before I even click on anything else, I see Wikipedia, Palestinian National Authority, with the following sentence. The Palestinian Authority is an authoritarian regime that has not held elections over 15, over 15 years. It has been criticized for human rights abuses, including dot, dot, dot. That is the first text describing um, the Palestinian Authority uh, on Google. And that to me is incredibly disturbing and uh, that says a lot about the dynamics surrounding the reporting and thinking about this conflict, right? Because yes, I obviously acknowledge uh, that there are significant problems with the Palestinian Authority. There are significant um, criticisms of corruption, very credible criticisms of corruption. There are, of course, there have been human rights abuses, but to make this the first part of the description, emphasizing the authoritarian aspect, emphasizing everything negative, already says something about the general vibe towards Palestinians, right? That everything about Palestinians is kind of terroristy, is kind of dark, is kind of negative, is kind of they're a bunch of criminals which of course feeds very nicely into this narrative of the shining light of freedom and democracy Israel fighting some um, unpleasant characters in Gaza and the West Bank, rather than the reality that you've got Palestinian territories that have been badly run over the past decades because they never had a chance to, the Palestinians never had a chance to set up a proper government, a proper state, because they were never given that chance by a dominant Israel that actually had won the conflict decades ago. It, these little details of how we talk about things, how we talk about people, how we talk about concepts are important. And it creates an enormous bubble if you, if you don't see those little nuances coming together and creating a very twisted version of reality. 
let's move on from the very specific Western bubble aspects to uh, more the overall international relations perspective of this, because uh, we feel that it's important uh, because knowing our listeners, I mean, we, we know some of you personally, but we also know the overall, the overall demographics. Um, we want to provide a bit more international relations perspective and context to all of this. Um, so let's start at zero and very quickly uh, basically move into the R analysis here. So most of the listeners will know that Israel-Palestine, right, this is the conflict between two different I would call them nations, but nation is a, is a difficult to define term, but you know, you have two different peoples, basically, and, and they're both struggling for the same territory. Um, and as you described earlier, you know, Israel has basically won the struggle, where Israel is the very dominant force, uh, is backed by the United States. I think up until 2021, Israel has received a total of 120 billion US dollars in aid, in military aid from the United States. So that's, uh, Israel has a very nice military. Let's just say that. If, you, if you're into militaries, Israel is a nice military to have. Um, and then you have, on the other side, you have the Palestinians who are kind of scattered over the West Jordan land, which is no longer really a thing. It's been basically punctured through with settlements, with Israeli settlements. And then you have this very small Gaza Strip, uh, the, one of the most densely populated areas in the world with about 2 million Palestinians living in a very small territory. And this is also where Hamas is uh, is operating mainly from. Um, so yeah, and yesterday you had uh, these attacks basically, right, with, uh, with a bunch of missiles being sent uh, over the border. This is nothing unusual in the region, right? This happens about every two to three years. Uh, there's some rockets being exchanged. A lot of people die. A lot of civilians die. And Israel usually wins in that sense because they have a very good air defense system and because the Palestinians don't. Um, that's, that, you know, that's that's simply the reality, reality of the ground. However, what was different yesterday is that yesterday you had also basically a ground incursion a little bit from, from Hamas troops uh, so a few hundred, uh, a few hundred of the, I don't know, can we call them soldiers, um, basically crossed uh, crossed into into Israeli territory, going into towns, killing people right on the street, uh, kidnapping people, mostly civilians. Uh, one should add, causing very difficult images online, especially on Twitter, uh, which is another you know call to action for me. Please do not be on Twitter during these moments. I did a mistake yesterday and it, it just ruined my day because you see very graphic images of people being killed and people being treated very badly. Um, so yeah, you basically had the situation, right? And let's put that into the international relations perspective. Um, and kind of asking the question, why is this happening now? Because as we kind of analyzed before, Hamas is no longer really a force to be reckoned with. Like Israel has basically won the conflict. So what is Hamas really, really doing here? What are they trying to, to achieve by this? Well, let me let me let me just start by kind of taking an issue with the idea of calling them soldiers, because once again, that would suggest that it's a fight between two territorial entities, right? Typically, we associate soldiers with the state, and this is not a state that has an organized military. Uh, militants, whatever, whatever you want to call them, members, whatever you want to call them, but but not soldiers. So, yes, this conflict, the, 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 the existential conflict between the two, two groups, if you like, uh, between Israel and the Palestinians has been dying out because there's one winner. The remnants of that conflict are still loosely organized in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, heavily, by the way, controlled by Israel from all sides. These are not 
um, autonomous regions, right? In the sense that um, this is not a situation where you've got territory fully controlled by any type of Palestinian authority because Israel is always there looming over the situation and um, militarily intervening continuously. The remnants of this conflict on the Palestinian side are organized um, uh, under certain groups and Hamas is one of those groups that, that was much more powerful 20 years ago um, but now has lost an awful lot of influence. And in many ways, if you start analyzing what they're doing right now, what, the, what their objectives were of this, uh, you, you have two sides of this analysis. The one is the strategic analysis. What would Hamas get out of this action, out of these events? And secondly, what is the underlying kind of bias or emotional state that Hamas uh, suffers from, right? The first, the first should be answered probably by saying that the fact that right now they're in the picture again, that people are writing about them, that they are all of a sudden relevant in global news is kind of a win for them, right? Like, hey, we're still here. We're still an actor to be reckoned with. We, we had to do this by killing 300 people, but... Um, uh, at least, at least we still ha are recognized by the world in our in our existence and in some kind of power. It is also a call to action to the rest of the world, right? Saying, "Hey, we're still struggling here. We're still in 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 need of support from the rest of the Sunni world and the rest uh, for the rest of the Arab world, whoever they want to appeal to, and to specific nations in particular, probably the, the specific Westphalian states." So there are a number of strategic goals that you can attribute to these actions by Hamas. But there's also simply the emotional state that Hamas, be, by not being a military, by not being a well-organized machine, is made up of a number of people with an awful lot of trauma and hatred and pain against Israel. And who just kind of want to lash back at Israel, who want to fight Israel, who want to kill Israelis just for the sake of it, right? So there's this tension between the analysis at the strategic level and the analysis of at the emotional level. And I, I would like to add one other thing to that. The emotional level in this case between the Israelis and Palestinians on both sides should never be underestimated because this is a conflict built on tremendous pain from both sides. This is a point that uh, that we have we have later on the agenda of definitely like a learning that I still have to do a lot right is not to over rationalize actors in international relations, um, but let's 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 move back to kind of like what is happening why this is happening because um, I think you gave a very good explanation of it um, without naming people right and here I'm I'm young right I'm uh, I, I don't need to be as careful with my words people will still like describe it as a ah, youthful uh, youthful naivete um, but let me name people because I feel like this is uh, this is what the people want in a podcast um, so as you said Hamas needs relevance right and they kind of need to make themselves more relevant and I mean there's always this domestic struggle right between Hamas that militant organization with terrorist tactics and uh, that other radical organization, according to Wikipedia. So that actually political 
uh, or organization, the Palestinian National Authority, which are basically the political organizational arm of uh, of the Gaza Strip, right? So, so there's always a bit of a struggle between the two of them over who has more legitimacy, and Hamas is, is obviously the, the militant one. And to put this into the, the regional or geopolitical context, um, Saudi Arabia and Israel have been in talks with each other about normalizing their relations. And let's be honest, Palestine is most likely going to be a play ball here and something that is going to be a trade-off in one way or another. And at least if you ask me, for me, this yesterday was a bit of a last straw from Hamas to, on the one hand, gain a lot of attention, but also to derail these Saudi-Israeli talks um, because they felt backed into a corner, right? Because if, if let's be honest, if Saudi Arabia stops basically supporting the Palestinian cause from their perspective, then then there's no one really backing them except maybe Iran. Yes, one problem with um, this for Hamas is, is that this is almost desperate in the sense that it's not as if Saudi Arabia lately let's say, go back five years or ten years, has been this incredibly active supporter of Hamas, right? Um, So in 1948, when the state of Israel was created and this conflict essentially started because all of a sudden Palestinians were pushed out of their homeland, out of their ancestral homeland, for the creation of uh, the Israeli state. From that moment on, the Arab world has been outraged about this, has been angry about this. And when I say the Arab world, it's certainly a grassroots anger at a a very fundamental population level that then, to a greater or lesser extent, states, governments had to respond to. And what you see, again, certainly since 1978, what you see is that Governments has mo- have mostly pretended to support the Palestinians, but have never really taken a strong stance against in this conflict because the geopolitical cost for a country like Saudi Arabia would simply be too high. Because if you become too aggressive anti-Israeli, you lose your U.S. market, you lose your U.S. allies, you lose European friends. And that is a price that the House of Saud was not willing to pay. It has not been willing to pay. So... We should not over. Uh, we shouldn't exaggerate the support that Palestinians have received from other Sunni or Arab states. Yes, there is an awful lot of sympathy uh, among the populations. Yes, there is a discourse that is supportive of the Palestinians. But in reality, the Palestinians certainly for the past 10, 20 years have been basically left to their own devices. They've been left essentially to rot in, in no man's land, right? With, with, with any, without any geopolitical identity or geopolitical support. So the fact that Hamas might now say to uh, Saudi Arabia, hey, please remember that we're here and look at how Israel is brutally now retaliating to us. Please come to our aid. It's, it's kind of a move of desperation because the aid wasn't there to begin with. It's a very desperate move, right? But uh, I mean, it is very much raising raising the the barriers of entry for Saudi Arabia into peace uh, talks with Israel, as you said, in case Israel retaliates in a very aggressive manner. Now, right? I mean, if I mean, there are uh, Netanyahu, you know, came out yesterday and said we're at war now. Um, I mean, let, let let's say the worst case scenario from a humanitarian perspective happens, and Israeli ground troops move into Gaza. Again, a very densely populated area with two million people. Um, it's very difficult to differentiate between friend and foe and civilian and non-civilian in these settings. 
And so just imagine you have a terrible escalation. That will definitely make it more difficult for states like Saudi Arabia to say, oh, Israel, let's be friends. Absolutely. And, and, and that might be kind of the rational mo- motivation behind these actions, right? That, that, that certainly it could be an explanatory variable, basically saying, look, they thought, okay, we're dying here, um, as in almost literally, but certainly metaphorically, as an organization and as, as a people where we're being further pushed out please, please, please let this be like a wake-up call to everyone. I would, however, argue that uh, even if somehow this would lead to Saudi Arabia having to kind of freeze its warming up with Israel for a while, in the long run, it won't do anything. Whatever happens, Saudi Arabia has made, and, and other countries, Gulf countries and others, have made the choice to no longer take a sort of principled approach towards the conflict and more look at the practical realities. And the practical realities in the 21st century are that they will have to work with Israel because that's the only way to work with the rest of the world. Right. And this is then also basically playing into what you said earlier, this let's not over-rationalize actors in international relations. So maybe there was someone sitting in a back room and had this amazing plan that, okay, if we... Uh, attack Israel and if we do it viciously enough then it, Israel will retaliate and then Saudi Arabia will be by our side again but that would be very much over rationalizing that actor and in particular the militants right the the, the young boys executing the, or young men in this case executing uh, this operation because as you said those are most likely highly traumatized young men who have grown up in in a setting of oppression uh, their entire lives so and even worse, you know, they're like fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers um, as well. So now you have these young men, this monster basically unleash uh, over the border, uh, go into towns, create these terrible images that we have seen and create a psychological effect, uh, which I think we've talked about in the past, but it's very interesting uh, to be aware of is that so, so far 300 Israelis have died right? Um, there were terrible images on social media and everywhere where you could see terrible actions by these young men towards civilians, women, children, elderly. However, over the past 10 months, um, we've seen, you know, an increasingly um, aggressive Israel in the form of, a, of their new right-wing government with a lot of raids in West Jordan, in Gaza, where the soldiers and police forces would go in um, and try to eliminate, you know, uh, some form of, some form of threat and regularly i would say almost every two or three weeks you would read oh uh israeli raid in in west jordan 13 people died right and if you accumulate those over 10 months over the 10 months that we have so far two plus 200 palestinians have died uh in these type of raids right so we are talking about similar numbers here but we're talking about a similar different level of outrage because one of them happens over 10 months you know and once in a while people die in car accidents too right but 300 people dying in one day, you know, with aggressive, uh, you know, aggressive social media imagery attached to it, that's a different feeling for us. Yes. And if I were now the Israeli government listening to this, I would shout at you, yeah, but those 200 Palestinians were militant fighters that we killed, not civilians. But we know that this is not the truth. We know that for every fighter that gets killed, X number of civilians also are part of the, if you like, collateral damage, right? So that kind of 
reporting has been there. I mean, anyone can Google it. And exactly as you said, every couple of weeks, at least, there is, there's there been some kind of news item. But our psychology doesn't pay that much attention to it for two reasons. First of all, in certainly Western psychology, Israelis are humanized more than Palestinians, right? We feel closer because of the reasons we even gave at the beginning, you at a personal level and even I at a personal level, feel a sense of guilt, a sense of concern about anti-Semitism. So therefore we value an Israeli life emotionally more or at least quicker than one uh, Palestinian life, which is something to be deeply aware of. But also those incremental small numbers don't seem as bad as one really big, big number of 300 people being killed in one day, especially if it is an unexpected event, right? We, we've come to expect Israeli actions, military actions in Palestinian territories. We haven't come to expect all of a sudden such a huge organized incursion of Palestinians into Israel. So the drama, the sudden nature, and the very large amount of people on top of it being Israeli victims means that we overvalue, or at least we, we value more this kind of event than similar numbers incrementally over time being um, uh, of, of, of Palestinian victims. Mm. So, so far we've talked about, you know, Israel as a, as a whole, we've talked about Saudi Arabia, we've talked about Hamas, we've talked about the uh, Palestinian National Authority, we've talked about Palestinians. Um, let's move on to the Israeli government. Um, because, I mean, just as we are differentiating between Hamas and Palestinians, I think it's also important to differentiate between the Israeli government, particularly this very right-wing government Israel has right now, and Israelis. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think I've said this before, I did my exchange in Israel. I mean, I did it online, it was during COVID. But I met with a lot of young Israelis studying at university. And there were very, very diverse opinions in class, right? There were very intense discussions on uh, on this. And I mean, half of the country is very much against uh, what Israel is doing with regards to the Palestinians. However, you currently have this government in power. And you have a person in power, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been in power for a very long time with interruptions, who's very experienced and uh, who's also rather conservative. Um, but he's in a good position right now because, I mean, he's, hey, 300 people have died and your country has just been traumatized because of this incursion. Uh, I don't think there's ever any anything good about this right now. But this is a man who has been under a lot of pressure in the past few months over a judicial reform that would hugely benefit the government and himself, who is under trial right now. And he has his right-wing coalition, uh, right, where the, the, the right is basically pressuring a lot, uh, a lot there. But since yesterday, a lot of doors have opened for him. Yes, and we always have to be careful here. So I am not his uh, psychoanalyst. I'm not his therapist. I don't know. I don't have any access to the, to the emotional state of Bibi Netanyahu. But I would guess, an educated guess, is that he generally suffers knowing that under his watch, 300 Israelis were killed. He, you know, the, the, the murder of his citizens, of his f fellow countrymen, is not something that he is happy about, that he uh, doesn't have an emotional connection to. He, I'm, I, I would expect him to, to actually deeply care about that. However, exactly as you said, despite that maybe pain that comes along with 300 of your citizens dying, 
come enormous opportunities and kind of relief for his policies, right? It, it is strategically a huge boon for him. And that is dangerous because it means that he has a vested interest in now escalating the situation because if tomorrow all of a sudden we stop talking about it if tomorrow it all of a sudden gets resolved you know Hamas hold up their arms say sorry we, we're responsible we'll walk towards the Israeli prisons and you can try us at that moment then that relief to Netanyahu will no longer be there and as a result it will push him into a direction of escalation because that favors his uh, strategic position if you like on top of that what we know about his psychology is that he's also very much part of this hardcore bunker mentality that is present among certain political groups within Israel, right? This goes all the way back to the formation of Israel, the pain out of which Israel was created, the Holocaust, the, the threat of Jewish people being uh, murdered, being, genocide being committed to them, uh, Israel, the, the existence of Israel being questioned. He's a hardcore believer in the absolute need for Israel to defend its own citizens, its own religion, its own territory at any cost. And that combination of that emotional state built on pain, plus the strategic interest that Netanyahu has in continuing this conflict is a very dangerous mix because it will mean that he, it, it's very likely that he will take um, now certain actions and, and an approach to this conflict that will only exacerbate the problems, not just for the Palestinians, but also for the Israelis. And on top of this, he also has basically no opposition within the country because the opposition already offered, especially the, the center opposition around Jair Lapid and Benny Gantz, have already offered uh, to him to form a new coalition, right? So there's there's no voice of reason for that sense, right? Who could say, hey, yes, we were attacked, but let's have... Uh, let's not invade, right? Let's let's not call uh, call more suffering. And before we talk about the suffering, I would say we move into the category, what's the damage? And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? Simply because when we're now in this category, I think this is exactly what we're talking about, right? I mean, the, the main damage is always going to be humanitarian suffering. Um, it's 300 people have died on the Israeli side, 400 people have died on the Palestinian side. That's terrible. We are still at the moment where, you know, you could stop, right? Where And this is something we've talked about with regards to 9-11. If George W. Bush had said, you know what, um, we're going to mourn our people and we're going to hunt down these terrorists, right, um, in a special force situation with our Navy SEALs, and we're not going to invade two other countries, then that would have been, that, that you know, that would, would make them even seem strong and similar with regards to Israel. If, if, if Netanyahu today says... And um, from a PR perspective, uh, I am I'm shocked at what happened. Um, but what I'm even more shocked about is that there were people within our country who were celebrating these events, the Palestinians. And this has made me realize that maybe we're treating them the wrong way. And let's let's all come together at a table and we'll find a solution, right, within Israel. Let 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 Gaza aside for now. Um, and he could come out as a strong man, but let's be honest, this is not a likely scenario. This man has already declared war. So what's the damage going to be? He's going to he's going to at least launch worse airstrikes and if, if worse comes to worse, uh, march in march into Gaza with tanks and soldiers. 
Yes, and so uh, we should remind the listeners once again that this is recorded on Sunday morning. So when they're listening to this, things will have developed, things will have changed. But uh, so far, Netanyahu has reacted exactly in line with his past behavior, exactly what you would expect from escalating the situation, having this attitude of uh, we need to fight them in any way possible. And as a result, he's weakening the future of both the Palestinians as well as the Israelis because even if you're an Israeli citizen terrified by these events from yesterday you're Jewish and you uh, this was a, like a wake-up call or whatever that the world is still a dangerous place because 300 of your citizens being murdered or kidnapped is a big big deal even in that situation if you want security the worst thing that your country can do right now is to actually use its full military might. I mean, they can, just like the United States could use its full military might after 9-11, and they did. But over the long term, that will only weaken your security. That will only weaken your safety. That is not actually going to solve the long-term consequences. And for none of this analysis, you need any moral recognition of the suffering of the Palestinians, right? So even if you say, hey, look, I am Israeli Jewish. I don't care about Palestinians in the Gaza Strip or in the West Bank. It's not my problem. I want my family, my Jewish family to be safe. Okay. Even in that case, the worst thing that your government can do right now is to start escalating militarily that uh, that conflict even further because that escalation over the past decades of military incursions has actually led to a situation that something like this weekend became much more likely against Ukraine because there is so much pain and suffering and anger and outrage on the Palestinian side. The best step towards security and safety is often to take a step back, to, to breathe in and breathe out and say, all right, how can I be the reasonable one in this conflict? How can I be the one who... Uh, takes the high ground and that won't solve the problem tomorrow but it will solve the problem or at least diminish the problem in 10 years time by saying by showing not just the world but also the palestinians inside of my own territory and the palestinians in the west bank and gaza strip that we are actually not the bad guys unfortunately instead israel is continuously from a palestinian perspective signaling that they are the bad guys and we know that there's currently currently like a convoy of, of tanks moving moving towards Gaza, right? So it's it's very likely uh, all of this. And I mean, again, from a psychological perspective, understandable, right? It's I mean the, these images yesterday were very very traumatizing. But and this is now back within the Western bubble um, kind of context of this podcast. Something that we've analyzed in the past a lot is that the worst well, one of the worst damages of the Western bubble is that. It f- focuses um, on the wrong problems and tries to solve things, actually worsening the already existing underlying problems. And this is the same in Israel, right? There are underlying problems in Israel, and they are how Israel treats the, the Palestinians in Israel, Palestinians in West Jordan, and the Palestinians in, in, in Gaza. I mean, the, the best example here is already, right, we're talking about Hamas attacking Israel, and Israel then cutting off the electricity supply to Gaza. For context, Israel supplies two-thirds of Gaza's electricity, right? So here you have a reaction that is now focusing on the wrong type of problem. And exactly as you said, right, instead of taking that, you know, peaceful solution, it's worsening the existing problems. 
And once again, it equates Palestinians with the people who committed these crimes yesterday. Just like there was this tendency, slightly more subtle, but still this tendency after 9-11 to equate Al-Qaeda with the Arab world or with Muslims or any, you know, any broad group like that. And as a result, all of a sudden, you're completely tackling the wrong issues and you're exacerbating the problem for yourself. Uh, it is absolutely fundamental for Israel to understand, first of all, that they've won the conflict with the Palestinians. And that now that they've won that conflict with the Palestinians, they, it is their turn to be magnanimous towards the Palestinians, to be generous towards Palestinians, because no one in their right mind thinks that somehow there's a Palestinian state threatening Israel anymore. And doing that will actually solve part of the problem, not all of it, but part of the problem that they still very much face, namely the conflict with radical groups, with groups that actually want to murder Israelis, that want to kill Jewish people, that are carrying enormous trauma and pain into a conflict that, and that will, who will probably never be convinced otherwise, and we, who will, for, for the foreseeable future, fight Israel. That's something that you can't change, but you can change the Palestinian population's attitude towards those people. And you can change the way that the environment in which those militants, or if you like, those extremists operate. But in order to do that, you need to first recognize that you're no longer at war, if you ever were, with the Palestinian people. And what now? So what does the future look like? More humanitarian suffering. I think we could keep this category short, right? Yeah, in and in, in a very the short term future is unfortunately very likely to gonna be gonna be a lot of um, destruction and destruction in terms of lives and in, in, in terms of uh, property, but also destruction in terms of goodwill, in terms of any possibilities of sites coming together. Um, in 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 the long run the outcome is very difficult to predict because it depends how far Israel will go in its retaliation. It, 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 if Israel still manages to limit its anger and its outrage and its need for vengeance, if you like, then the, the consequences will be much less severe than if Israel now uses this moment as a 9-11 moment and essentially start its own version of a war on terror. If that's the route that they take, then the long-term structural consequences can be horrific for the region and especially for the Palestinian people. Well, this sounds uh, depressing enough um, to to be at the end of this episode. Uh, I, to a certain extent, apologize to listeners here that, um, that this was a rather dark one, but unfortunately, uh, that's the world we live in. So... Let's end the conversation um, on, well, the recent and as ongoing Hamas-Israel uh, escalation. If you have any co uh, questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. We will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? It seems that these kinds of moments are the moments that we need the wisdom of the great... Dr. Martin Luther King, who said, 
The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that.